by a show of hands, and you online, you can raise your hand too. Um, how many of you have seen the movie Everything, Everywhere, All at Once? Seriously? It's available online. You can stream it. I want you to all pick out a couple of hours this week and watch it. For one thing, it will, tell, it will really help you understand why I'm the way I am. <laughs> but also, it would, I think, also help you sort of put together much of what we do in here. You know, as I was listening to this song, I didn't prepare, I didn't plan on some of these things happening. Things happen because we create a space where creativity and sort of the connectedness that we've always been about in this service come together because there's that openness for that to happen rather than sort of coming in with expectation, coming in with already defined sort of static ways of understanding. And all of a sudden, everything starts to happen all at once. So as they're singing this song um, out loud, I suddenly remembered a poem by the Middle Eastern poet Hafiz. And thankfully, I have it in one of my notes, but I had to find it. It's called With That Moon Language. Admit something. Everyone you see says to you, you say to them, love me. Of course, you do not say this out loud. Otherwise, someone would call the cops. <laughs> Still, though, think about this. This great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one? Why not become the one who lives with a full moon in each eye that is always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Everything all at once. That's really how I think the spirit moves, if you want to think in terms of spirit, how transcendent moves, if you want to think in terms of how we connect to what is mysterious in our world, how love moves, if you want to look at the force or the, or the, or the creative presence of the eternal that is in the midst in, that, in which we live and move and have our being, as Paul would say. Um, that's, I think, how it often works. And the challenge for us to get to that place, let me find my sermon here. The challenge for us to get to that place, I think, is recognizing that it's always there. See, last week, I think I ended with the question to take home with you, if you were here, which a third of you weren't, so it's all brand new to you. Um, <laughs> that's the nature of this reality we're in, right? It's like a third of you aren't here every Sunday, so I was like, I don't even know why I do series. But at any rate, what I, what I said last week was I said, think about this if you really truly believe it. If you stick around long enough, I'm, I'm just saying the same thing I've been saying for nine years, right? So if, if you think, if you really truly believe this, do you really believe at your heart, in your heart, in, in, in how you look at things, that we truly are deeply all interconnected and grounded in the creative love of God? In this creative love that, that, that is a part of the essence, the, the movement, the, the, the very stuff and substance and being of all of life, of one another. Do you really believe that, right? Do you really believe that? Is that, is that how you wake up in the morning and you go like, I wonder where I'm going to see more of myself? I wonder where I'm going to see something about myself I don't know yet. Do you really think that? I mean, I, I don't, but I'm practicing it, and I'm the one that's preaching it. But that's what this is all about. So I'll start off with the, another story, because I love to start off with these stories. And, and they're always these stories that I think you're going to see. You're going to listen to it. You're going to go like, oh, yep, we've already told that one. No, I haven't told you this one. So there are three guys on an island. You're going like, yeah, we heard this one. 
there are these three monks who have gotten stranded on an island, all right, these Christian monks, and, and, and they go looking around the island, they, they explore it, looking for some sort of help, some way to, to, to find some, some way to signal to others, to let them know they're there, but after about the second or third day, they kind of give up all hope when one of them finds a cave. And so they think, well, this can be our space for where we can meditate and pray more in depth. And, and that's what they're used to, having been monks in a monastery and all of that. So they go into the cave and they start to pray and they're meditating and they're contemplating and trying to just let go of stuff. When suddenly the spirit of the cave sort of takes pity, get kind of moved by their inspiration and by their commitment. So the spirit kind of appears and it says, I'm going to grant you each a wish, one for each of you. The first monk's eyes light up. He says, all right, okay, I've really... I've just been missing being here and in this cave. I've been missing being back at the monastery. I wish I was back at the monastery with my brothers and my friends. And poof, he was gone. The second one looked around and said, wow. Well, once he mentioned that, I was I'm kind of thinking I want to as well. I, I wish I was back with my, with my friends. And then poof, he was gone. The third one looked at the spirit and said, well... Now that I see they're gone, I'm kind of missing them. I wish they were back here. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, there's a couple of things that I would say about that. First of all, it's honest, but it's also kind of short-sighted because it's immediately kind of responding out of where we are emotionally, right? We kind of just respond sometimes to our situations emotionally, whether it's fear or desire or the sense of lack or what we're missing, we always react from that place. And the sad thing is, of course, that we don't really see what else is possible. I've always said that God is the redemptive moments in all of, the, the redemptive possibilities in all of our moments. God is the redemptive possibilities in all our moments. And you have to kind of think about what that means, because it's a little bit different way of thinking about God, or thinking about redemption, or even thinking about all our moments. But if the third person had really kind of looked around and realized what was going on, there would have been this whole possibility that all, actually all three of them didn't think of, but certainly he didn't because, he, again, he was operating out of the emotions, maybe the sense of lack or the sense of, of a longing rather than realizing <laughs> I'm already where I belong in all my moments. Anyway, so it, it's kind of fun that it illustrates that. But what I've been trying to get across in this whole series of big mind help for small-minded times is that if indeed... We are a part of this bigger reality that everyone else is, including those people that scare us, including those people with whom we disagree, including those folks with whom we are estranged, including this dysfunctional reality at all levels that we live in. If, in fact, we are interconnected, then how do we operate in a way that is big mind? Because we tend to operate out of small-mindedness, which is kind of like the guy. It's kind of our small, self-focused, what is going on for me right now? I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm feeling this right now. Our emotions are directing what, where things are going. So let me ask you this question. This is a nice illustration, I think, of some of this. Um, what weighs 13 million pounds, has been around since almost close to the Ice Age, is the largest living organism on Earth, and until about 50 years ago, no one had any idea what and where it was. Got a clue? Online? No? It's called the Pando Aspen. It's a grove of aspen trees in south central Utah. It's been around for about 35 to 40,000 years. It is almost 47,000 individual looking trees, but they are not individual looking trees. They are all one root system, all completely interconnected. 
and all weighing, you know, about uh, 13 million tons or 13 million pounds. <laughs> and the interesting thing about this is just to think about how long this has been here, right? That nobody realized that, oh, this is just one living organism. And suddenly, 50 years ago, they have either the tools or the consciousness or both at the same time to begin to explore. This is a whole other way of understanding organic life, living that I had never, that we never understood before. I think that's where we are as, human, as a human species. I think why we see some progress, but we always see pushback, we always see anxiety, we always see fear, is because we have a very powerful limbic system. It was really great for us when, when in our earliest days as human species, because anything and everything could be dangerous and attack us, you know, and eat us. And so we always responded out of this limbic system, out of our brainstem, out of our fear, flight, and freeze kind of responses. But if you think about it, we're still doing that, right? We still operate out of our fear, flight, and freeze kinds of responses automatically. Something creates anxiety. Eh, I don't like that. Somebody wants to go to a movie. We go, eh, I don't want to go to that movie. Somebody shoots, cuts in front of us on a freeway. Somebody says something online. We start reading Twitters, and already we're looking for our allies because we're scared, and that's what we do. But imagine you're one of those people then in part of one of those text groups, and you say, you know what? I'm tired of sort of taking sides. I think I'm going to not take the other side. I'm going to take a whole third side. I'm going to critique everybody. What happens to you? Now nobody wants to be your friend, <laughs> right? It's dangerous. It's dangerous. And you remember last week, I, I, I used that quote. Now, this isn't the right. Don't, don't put the next quote up yet, September. But I, I used this other quote from Einstein. We're gonna I'm going to show you another one in just a minute. But I had said that Einstein had said, we're part of a whole as a human being. We're not separate. But we live with this delusion that we're separate. Well, that's, that's part of our neurology. Linda was telling me the other day as we were talking about this, she says, why do you always have to talk about neurology? I said, because it's basically why we do everything. And we're not mindful of it. And so it stops us from being the best that we can be as human beings for one another, that we can live into Jesus' teachings, this radical kind of craziness, loving your enemy? What? That's number one, it's stupid. And number two, it sounds dangerous, right? Well, that reason why is because we're operating just out of our limbic system. We're just operating still out of that basic, primitive kind of anxiety that drives a lot of our emotions, our lack, our, our anxiety, we're missing out something, FOMO, we're fear of missing out on something important, or we want not living enough, all those things are rooted in our anxiety. So I had said this once before, years ago, maybe not years ago, I haven't been there that long, <laughs> life is filled with exquisite beauty and risk. The risk, this is just something I made up, so don't take it for, as a grain of salt, life is filled with exquisite beauty and risk. The risk is trusting this vision of the divine wholeness hidden in all things. And then living with a wide enough perspective of wonder and humility to be astonished by the beauty even in the most unlikely of places. God is the redemptive possibilities in all our moments. But you got to take risk, right? You got to risk seeing that. You got to risk going up to somebody who you go like, I do not want to know that person. And instead you got to say, that's a part of me I don't know yet. This is a part of me I don't know yet. I mean, it's crazy. So Einstein said this. He said, we can put this quote up there. I think the most important question facing humanity is this. Is the universe a friendly place? 
This is a question all people have to answer for themselves. For if the universe is perceived as unfriendly, then we'll use our technology and the Earth's resources to create bigger walls to keep out the unfriendliness and bigger weapons to destroy what feels unfriendly. He's kind of a little bit future thinking there, <laughs> if you think about when he said this. But if we decide our universe is a friendly place, then we'll use our technology and our resources to create tools and models for understanding one another better. Because really where we are right now is we're just kind of advanced apes, but still operating like you know, primates with all sorts of nuclear technology at our, at our disposal, right? We're just not there yet, but, but everything else around us, our toys and our tools are getting there faster than we are to use it. We don't have the wisdom. But that wisdom requires taking risks that don't make sense given our defensiveness, given our, our basic neurology. A friend of mine, Bill Hurley in Houston, wrote this. I think I put this up there. Let's see the next slide, September. By the way, September is operating. September Kirk is operating our slides today. We're so thankful she filled in because we've, we lost our person for a few weeks. Thank you. And it just so happened it was perfect because this is, the, this is her favorite month. So, <laughs> in, inside jokes. We will not save, whether it's the earth or each other, what we do not love. Does that resonate with you? Do you think that's true? Honestly? If you're really just going to be honest about it, we're not going to save what we don't love, whether it's the earth or each other. We will not love what we do not experience as sacred. Now, that's a trickier statement because what is it that we actually experience as sacred? That's the thing that I think we miss out on the most because taking that risk to experience that, that interconnectedness is the only way we get there. Loving your enemy, Jesus was basically telling his followers, loving your enemy, doing good to others, even if they don't do good to you, that's the only way you experience the deep sacredness is you've got to break open in order to experience others and allow them to break open because guess what? Those people that you don't like or that you find frightening, they're operating out of the same limbic system. They just don't get it. They don't see that you're a part of them they don't know yet. So this last week, on Wednesday, I posted something by Valerie Carr. I think, is it, is it up there? Is it the next slide? Nope. Go back. Oh, well, this is a good one, though. This is, this is we're almost getting there. <laughs> right? We're almost getting there. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so anyway, I don't think I put this one up. I don't think I put this slide in there. But last week, I put in this slide by Valerie Carr. Some of you know who Valerie Carr is. Valerie Carr is a Sikh woman. Who she's, a, she's a journalist. She's also a civil rights activist, been active for the last 20, 30 years. She's also a lawyer, got her degree, doctorate of law in, uh, at Harvard. She also went to seminary in California. She wrote this, and I posted it last week. Some of y'all responded. You have to refu refuse to hate others, even when they choose to hate you. You have to refuse to hate others even when they choose to hate you. That's hard. That's hard to do, right? It's pretty revolutionary when you think about it because, again, of that limbic system that we've got. So I posted that on Wednesday. On Thursday, I was finishing up at the office. Linda was going to do a, a, a funeral because I couldn't be at the funeral that, the, on Thursday, and so she was going to do that, and then she was going to go visit with a friend. And so I thought, well, it's 6 o'clock, 6.15, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I happened to turn on, you know, open up Facebook, and then there was a post. Valerie Carr is going to be in Dallas at, at 7.30 at the uh, Temple uh, Emmanuel in Dallas on Hillcrest. I looked at my watch. It was 6.30. I thought, I can still get there. 
So I bought the ticket, and I went home real quick because I needed to change. I was wearing pretty ripped up jeans because I was just working in the office that day by myself. And so I changed clothes, and it was 6.45, and I got there at 7.35, and I walked in. Big crowds of folks there at the temple, Sikhs, Jews, Christians, atheists. I'm sure there was all sorts of folks that were there, but they were there for one purpose. They were there to figure out how do we change the world? How do we make the world a place that not only feels safe, but that is just, that is right relationship with one another, that celebrates one another. Now, she's a Sikh woman. She told a powerful story some of you all know about a man named Bodhi, uh, um, uh, Bal, I'm sorry, let me get his right, Balbir Sodhi. On September 15th in 2001, Balbir Sodhi, a Sikh man who owned a gas station, was out closing up his gas station one evening when a pickup pulled out across the street four days after 9-11, after right? Pulled up across the street and fired five rounds, killing him, and then drove off. Later on, that same individual shot four other people. None of them sustained serious energy, in, uh, injuries. His name was uh, Frank Roke. Frank Roke on the 12th had already bragged to his friends I'm going to go take out some towel heads. And I, if I hit any of their kids, they're going to. His reaction to what happened at 9-11 completely, so completely blinded his reality, right? Operating completely. And we say a racist. We say a bigot. We say a hate crime. Sure, obviously. Arrest the guy. And they did. They found him. They arrested him. He actually died a few years, just a few years ago in prison after serving a lifetime sentence, they didn't actually, you know, he, he died after 23 years. But there's part of that story, too, that's pretty profound. But, but Frank was operating out of the same system that most of us operate out of. It's just that his conditioning has placed him at a place where that's all that's operating, is extreme, extreme fear and aggressiveness. It turned out that Valerie Carr knew Sodi, she knew him. She kind of, like a number of her family, they knew him and often called him uncle. His brother, whose name is Donnie, his brother knew Valerie, and the two of them began to get active in civil rights actions and in gun prevention and in rights for um, people of color, but also interreligious dialogue. They became very active in all of this. The story goes on, on on some time as she was telling this story, but what was really profound about this was after 15 years, she was a lawyer, so for 15 years, she was going to court, she was taking the gun control issue to court, she was taking uh, interfaith and interreligious freedom issues to court, she was fighting this fight for, for the freedoms and civil rights of individuals of different religious backgrounds in a country where some have often thought this is a Christian country and that's always as it been and the rest of you really need to get out of here or step in line. She was fighting that. And then about 15 years had passed, and she was talking to Sodi's brother. And they were having a conversation when he started crying, and he said, nothing has changed. It's now 2017. Nothing has changed. It's still just as dangerous. People are still being shot and killed because of bigotry or bias or assumptions or fear. And she looked at him, and she said, maybe there's something we haven't done yet. Maybe we haven't loved Frank. And it surprised his brother Donnie, but at the same time, Sikhs, one of their, one of their most central core values 
is that they believe in service. No matter who you are, where you are, what you need, if a Sikh man or woman is there, they will jump to aid. In fact, they even say amongst themselves and friends, the reason we wear the turban is why you have, red cross, why you have the white crosses on, on, on red cross vehicles is because it tells you help is near. Anytime you see a Sikh person with a turban, you know help is near. Isn't that interesting? What could we do as Christians? <laughs> what might we do, you know? Just fascinating. So she said, we haven't loved Frank. They called Frank. And Frank called them back. And he had said he didn't know why he was talking to them. And she said, well, I just know we need to talk to you. And, her, and his brother, uh, Sodi's brother was there and Valerie was there and they were talking to Frank. And he said, well, I'm here. I need to tell you that I am sorry. I've been thinking about this a lot. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry that, that I, I'm also sorry that so many people died in the towers. I am so sorry. But, but I'm not sorry that, 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 I, that those people who did that should be punished. But I am sorry that I shot your brother and killed your brother. And Valerie was feeling all this anger, like he's equivocating, like this is, he's not really sorry. And she was feeling all this bitterness. And then his brother looked at her and said, wait a minute, he said something. And he said, so Frank, I've never heard you say that before. You just said you're sorry. And Frank said, I am sorry. I said, I feel that deeply. I am so, so sorry. It was horrible. And he said, and when I go to heaven and I have to answer to my God, and, and I'll answer to my God for what I did, I also hope that I can find your brother. And when I find your brother, I'm going to say I'm sorry to him too. And then Donnie looked at Valerie and he, on the phone he said, Frank, you've already been forgiven. That idea of forgiving even those who do you harm is such a profoundly um, complicated way of thinking. It's, it's, it's counterintuitive, right? Because it sounds like you're saying we need to forget. It has nothing to do with forgetting. It has to do with setting yourself free. Because when you forgive someone else, or when you forgive yourself for something you've done, you're allowing yourself to, you're allowing yourself to feel some freedom. I'll finish up with the last quick story. It's been an interesting week, and so I, was, I went to a funeral on, on, Sunday, on, uh, on Saturday. The Donovans were there with us. Friend of ours, Jim Riddlesberger's mother, 104 years old, had, had died. And um, she, she was an amazing person, very much about social justice, back about women's rights, even temperance. I mean, she was very active in things that really made a difference for, the, for humanity. And she was doing that in Minnesota, then she was doing that in Denton, which is part of the best of what represents the Methodist Church, if you really think about it. And so she had passed, and so there was a wonderful memorial service done for her. And after that memorial service, Linda and I decided to go to the square in Denton, and there happened to be a festival. And it was just one of those fun festivals with all the, the musicians around the courthouse, and, and there were all sorts of craft booths and food booths. And then the parking lot was filled with muscle cars. I mean, some awesome cars, you know, awesome trucks, great cars, engines up, a couple of cars there that had little notes on them, just, the, you know, please stay off. And then one of them said, please don't touch unless you're nude. I thought, really? Has anybody taken you up on that? You know, it's like, all right, I'm, it's kind of a strange thing to put. Anyway, it was really fun, but it's a different culture, right? It's definitely a different culture. I, there's parts where we crossed over, and it was fun. I've driven a Challenger for a while, and it was an amazing experience. And Linda's like, I hated every moment of it. But I was like, it feels awesome. 
It's really fun to pull up next to somebody and blare that engine really loud. I know they hate it. <laughs> but it's something about that. And so I've, I was enjoying all that. And then we decided to eat at a cafe and we sat down. But as we sat down, I looked over and the guy next to me had a big green truck camo all over it. United States, U.S. flags all over the thing. He was sitting there in his uh, lawn chair, had his hat on, also wearing a flag-covered shirt and some, and some, and some leaflets. And Linda and I just kind of looked at each other like, is there any other chair, any other seat here at this cafe on the sidewalk? But there wasn't, and so we had to sit down, and I looked over at her, and I muttered. I said, you know, I guess we're going to have to sit next to a, maybe he's a proud boy or a trumper or something. I don't know. I'm just going to have to sit. We'll just sit down. And she's like, well, maybe move over here. And we'll just sit down. I wasn't even listening to my own words, right? Just reacting. I don't know if I want to get into it with, a, with somebody like that. So we sat there, and the food came after a little while, and the guy looked over and said, y'all from here? And we said, no, we're from Fort Worth, but come up here a lot. Little by little, things led into, into a little more conversation. And I said, so this is your truck? Yeah, he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, I, I rebuilt it and did all this stuff. The guy was 82 years old. He handed me one of the pamphlets, and I was like, oh, I don't want to go here. And then I looked at it, and it was about an electrician school that he teaches. <laughs> he mentors young men who can't afford it to get licensed in electrician, as an electrician. He's been doing that. He had fought in the Vietnam War. He may have fought in the Korean War. I wasn't sure, but he definitely fought in the Vietnam War. And he was a veteran, and he kind of brought that up, and, and, and he was talking about his experience. And I looked over at him, and I said, let me thank you for your service. And he got real serious, and he looked in at me, and it took me by surprise. He said, you know what? You were worth it. It completely sort of just stopped me. You were worth it. I probably was two years old, three years old, when he was first going to the, you know, into the war in the Navy. And I thanked him again. We talked a little bit further. We got some information about it. And then after a while, we left. And uh, Linda and I were kind of laughing with each other and thinking, you know what? We had lots of assumptions going into that one. And I said, I know. And still, in spite of all of that, I discovered I was worth it. And it, and it, took, me to, it took to heart for me what Valerie Carr was saying is the first thing we have to do to change this world is that we have to see no stranger. Instead, what we have to do is to look at people and go, what part of you is a part of me that I do not know yet? I need to know you better so I can know myself better. That's what Jesus was saying, right? Jesus was saying, love your enemy, love those who persecute you, love them. Why? Because we're all interconnected. We're all grounded in the same reality. And the only way everybody else can get past their limbic system is to start developing the prefrontal cortex. You can't help sometimes what you're doing, calling somebody a jackass after you just said, I know everybody's love, I love everybody else. And still I do, right? Getting mad at that, getting mad at the TV, because whatever we do, we act, react, react. We can't help it. It's our biology. The only way we can help it is to start changing the way we intentionally see things. There's a part of me that I don't know yet. Right there, right there, right? In all of these folks that we meet, in all these moments we meet. Jesus was saying that, and even though he didn't say why, you could tell in his life, right? Because what he was saying all along is, because you're worth it. They're worth it. They are worth it. Amen.